Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 22, Space Seed. Smiles, everyone, smiles. I'm Mr. Ray, your host. Welcome to Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Please allow me to introduce my diminutive co-host, John Champion. John, tell our guests what we do here. Yes, boss. Each week, each week, uh, we uh, like uh, to uh, John, 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 yeah. use your fake voice. Okay, since you asked, each week we examine one episode of Star Trek going deep to find the messages, morals, and meanings within, and deciding whether those and the show stand the test of time. This week, the Enterprise goes to Fantasy Island, but not really. We, uh, we say hello to an old enemy for the first time in Space Seed. Yeah, Khan, Khan Nunian Singh. Can't wait to get into this one. This is... It's big. It's a huge, epic episode that leads into huge, big, epic things later on. I have no idea what you're talking about. We're on episode 22. Oh, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Stepped out of the timeline. My uh, bad. Yeah, we, we do that. In fact, we may do that again later. I don't know. But uh, before we do that, let's, let's stay in the timeline that we normally stay in. Um, <laughs> people practically set their watch to this. It is about this time every show. Wait a minute. Three, two. It's about this time every show that... Uh, John hits us with some Star Trek trivia. Lay that funky trivia down, dude. All right. I do have a little bit for you this week. One thing I wanted to point out is that Khan has actually been asleep for closer to 300 years than 200, if we go by the revised timeline. There is a line in the episode where we say that Khan, who has been in deep freeze out in space along with his uh, followers, has been asleep for 200 years. In fact, they say two centuries, and Khan is shocked by this. Well... If we assume that he was launched in the late 90s, uh, this is actually the 2260s, whatever. But we hadn't really established all of that uh, uh, specifically yet. This is interesting. In an early draft in the original story, Khan was to have been Nordic. Really? Yeah. Weird, huh? Because uh, we give him a, uh, a a North Indian background in in this uh, in the real episode which is also weird you think well i mean and then to cast ricardo maltabon to play him yeah I, you know it is a little strange but I, ricardo montalban montalban brought this sort of exotic uh, uh, essence to the role that I think is very effective. So, yeah, in the 1960s, maybe we weren't being very specific about who we were casting to fit a particular uh, type or particular ethnic group. Yeah. Um, but, I, 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 you know, to, to me, it works. Well, okay. no, I'm not. I mean, look, yeah. he's Khan. It's, yeah. ju- it's yeah. just weird that they point out that he, I mean, because we had uh, Captain Chandra on just a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. Uh, who was uh, supposed to be an Indian guy and, oddly enough, played by an Indian guy. Yeah, right. (laughs) So, you know, I don't know. Like today, I don't think you'd be able to – I don't think you'd be able to cast Ricardo Maltabon with his accent as an Indian guy. But, you know, again, it's a long time ago and a – in a in a space studio far far away, so and he looks great in a Nehru jacket, and I'm going to bring <laughs> that back. All right, as do I. Yep. Um, and hey, uh, last little thing. Remember, 
the tragic young crew member who lost her husband-to-be in Balance of Terror, and then she showed up again under a different name in Shore Leave. Yes. She was supposed to have been in this episode, and there would have been some interaction with MacGyvers, um, who we will get into in a moment. Uh, but yeah, the, there was a, a, little, oh, a little girl talk, shall we say? Uh, when they were talking about uh, MacGyver's reveal, something about herself and the the kind of man that she might be looking for. Um, now, that scene was written. Um, questionable as to whether or not it was filmed. I, I've seen some reports say that it was, some that say that it wasn't. I would love to see that footage if it exists. Um, but yeah, I thought that was kind of cool that, that that actor was back for another role. Now, is she going to play yet another character? And they just keep just keep renaming her over and over and over again. <laughs> it's con. It's con. I know I'm supposed to say something intelligent here, but it's con. Ken, tell us more about con. Prologue. The Enterprise comes across an Earth ship from the 1990s, but in a sector of space where they'd not expect to find such a thing. There are strange life signs on board, but what are they? We'll find out after the opening credits. Act 1. Spaceship 1990-something and its 60 or 70 life signs take no notice of the Enterprise. Spock is able to identify the ship as the SS Botany Bay. Botany Bay? But he can find no historical record of it anywhere. Makes sense, though. The 1990s were the time of the last world war on Earth— the eugenics war. Records from then are kind of crappy and incomplete. Kirk, Scotty, McCoy, and Ms. Lieutenant Marla MacGyvers, a historian, beam over to the Botany Bay to see what's what. There they find humans, apparently in suspended animation, for about 200 years. Scotty turns on the lights and in so doing activates the sleep pod of what the away team figures to be the leader. MacGyvers figures him to be Northern Indian, probably a Sikh, a tremendous warrior, and definitely attractive. Then he nearly dies. Then they save him. Then they take him back to the Enterprise. Act 2. The Enterprise holds off on reviving the rest of the Botany Bay's crew until they can be assured of what's-his-name's survival. Still no record of the ship, though Kirk thinks maybe it was a prison ship since Botany Bay was also the name of an old Australian penal colony. The apparent leader of the troop is doing well. Very well, actually, with a heart and lungs that are twice as powerful as regular man's, according to McCoy. MacGyvers comes in to check on the man and is dressed down by Kirk, though she assures him that her interest in what's-his-name is professional. After all, she's a historian, and he's a fine piece of man-meat. History! He's a fine piece of history! What? When all but bones are gone, what's-his-name wakes up, does a few stretches, grabs a knife, puts it to Bones' throat, and starts asking questions. Bones is defiant, and an if-you're-gonna-kill-me-kill-me kind of way, which impresses what's-his-name. He puts the knife down, then gets his answers. He's on the Enterprise, and yes, he has been asleep for 200 years, and now we'd like to see the captain. Kirk introduces himself. What's-his-name does not until he gets a few questions answered. Where are they going, and how many of his people survived? Starbase 12 and 72, says Kirk. And you are? His name is Khan. Is that a first name? A last name? Eh, just call me Khan. He orders his people revived, though Kirk declines and has a few questions of his own. Though Khan says he's too tired to answer and Bones backs Kirk off. Kirk leaves, though, not before turning over all the technical data about the Enterprise to Khan. Well, what could go wrong? Kirk wonders whether Khan could be the product of selective breeding, something Spock thinks is possible. 
Remember the eugenics wars? Supermen like Khan took over in about 40 nations in the 1990s, though they were given to battling each other because, according to Spock, superior ability breeds superior ambition. P.S. 80 or 90 of the warlord supermen were unaccounted for at the end of the war. How many were on the Botany Bay again? Marla MacGyvers goes to sickbay to meet Khan, who starts hitting on her immediately. She should wear her hair down. She tries to keep the meeting all business, but he's all seduction, and she's all into it. Later, Khan stops by MacGyver's quarters to escort her to a welcome dinner in his honor. She's wearing her hair down. She's drawn a picture of him, along with important men throughout history. They make out, then head to dinner. It is at this dinner that Khan's sympathies with the eugenics warlords are revealed. In fact, he may have been one. Dinner ends abruptly with Khan feigning fatigue again. Back in his quarters, MacGyver's stops by to apologize to Khan. They had no right to treat him that way, and she still thinks he's dreamy. He makes a move. She says no. He gets angry. Then he goes all power play. Now you must ask to stay. And she does. And he physically hurts her, demanding her loyalty and her help in taking over the ship. Crying, she says she will do whatever he asks, ending the fullest Act 2 in the history of Act 2s. Act 3. Khan, it turns out, is Khan Noonien Singh, absolute ruler of a quarter of the Earth, Asia through the Middle East from 1992 through 96, and last of the tyrants to be overthrown. Bones, Kirk, and Scotty confess to kind of admiring Khan, though never approving of what he did. Kirk sets a 24-hour security detail outside Khan's quarters and locks him in. Then he stops by for Q&A with Khan. Khan lets him ask his questions, but says Kirk wouldn't understand, what with his being so inferior. In fact, Khan is disappointed at how little man has evolved while he was sleeping. Sure, they have great technology, but man himself is still kind of flabby. Yes, he says, we will do well in your century. That seems to cinch it for Kirk. Khan is not to be trusted. Left alone, Khan forces open his door and overpowers his guard. He makes his way to the transporter, where MacGyvers is holding the operator at the point of a phaser. She beams Khan to Botany Bay, where he sets to reviving his race of super people. Sleep is over, he says. The battle begins again, only this time it is not a world will win. It is the universe. Back aboard the Enterprise, Khan is found to have escaped, just as Kirk finds communications and lifts jammed and life support cut off for the bridge. Kirk orders the ship flooded with neural gas, but that's inoperative too. Khan is running the ship from engineering. Kirk refuses to surrender the bridge, but Khan says it doesn't matter. With no air, everyone on the bridge will suffocate. Then he'll get the bridge. Act 4. Yep, everybody on the bridge is suffocating, though apparently not the dead kind. When next we see the crew, Khan is urging them to join him and take him to a planet with a population willing to be led. When they refuse, he threatens to kill Kirk in a decompression chamber and make the crew watch. MacGyvers asks if she may be excused, and Khan says sure. Then the video feed to Kirk being killed goes down, but so what? Kirk is dead, according to Khan, who orders Spock killed next. Kirk is, of course, not dead. MacGyvers has gone to save him, though she asks Kirk to please not kill Khan. Kirk overpowers the guard, bringing Spock to the decompression chamber, and they flood the ship with neural gas. All but Khan are knocked out. He makes his way to engineering. Kirk follows. They fight. And Kirk wins! though only by grabbing something heavy and hitting Khan with it repeatedly. So, now what to do with Khan and company? Kirk decides that sending him to a reorientation center would be a waste. Instead, he's willing to drop them off on the fairly hostile, though still inhabitable, SETI Alpha 5. Khan says he's cool with it, referencing Milton's Paradise Lost, a quote from Lucifer when he's thrown into the pit, "...it is better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven." MacGyver's is given a choice, face court-martial or go with Khan. She chooses the latter. 
Spock says it would be interesting to return in 100 years to see what crop has sprung from the seed Kirk planted that day. Kirk agrees, though. I gotta say, I think it's gonna work out for Khan and his people. Also, the end. Yeah, you're very optimistic about how that'll work out for Khan, aren't you? Dude, they're supermen. What could go wrong? (laughs) I mean, it's not like the sun is going to explode and knock their planet out of orbit or something. No, no, no. No. I think think this is going to work out well for them. Smiles all around. It'll be like a... It'll be like a fantasy island in the SETI system. <laughs> right. Hey, speaking of fantasies, did you notice that when they get on the uh, transporter pad at first, Kirk is totally checking out MacGyver's? I did not notice that. Although, do, yeah. you, think, do you think it was Kirk doing that or do you think it was uh, Shatner? I think it was both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it was a strong character choice right. by Mr. Shatner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he does it. You know, it, we, we've seen this a few times now where, um, oh, we need to get the specialist. And by the way, she's hot. And by the way, Kirk is stymied, but also checking her out. Yeah. Although it's not, he's not, well, yes. He was actually not as, as turned on or put off by her as he has been by other uh, femmes du jour, I right. think. He's more willing to dress her down more quickly, but we can we can get into that in a little bit if you want to. By the way, is this the first time that McCoy has said something about the transporter? I think so. Because here's the thing. like He's really badass when he's got the knife to his throat when yeah. Khan is threatening him. Yeah. I mean, that, that is tough guy McCoy, just all in his face. But then he says something about, I don't want my atoms scattered all over the universe. Well, yeah, okay. Well, you, know, you can handle the knife to the throat, but you don't like uh, the transporter. But I, I think this is the first true reference we get to that i thought that was kind of cool it's it was a weird bit of leadership or a weird bit of bravado from mccoy i mean you don't want him to fold immediately i mean with a knife in his throat you don't want him to say i'll tell you whatever you want to know (laughs) right but he was only not telling him because he had a knife at his throat and he was being Mm -hmm. he was being really i mean it was actually it was very funny he's like uh you know who who am i i am your doctor and you have a knife on my at my throat and then he suggests the quickest way to kill him if he's going to kill him. It was kind yeah. of neat. It was kind of a neat little character moment. Yeah, I, I like that. And, and I tell you, you know, speaking of character, man, I, I mean, where do you even start with Khan? Because the, there are so many parallels to other historic figures. But I, I think the thing, one of the things here that's so interesting to me about Khan is his just sort of inherent charisma. And I've thought about, you know, over the last, uh, well, uh, since bill clinton was first elected to office um you would hear reporters say very often and even now you know well after his presidency has ended you would hear reporters say well like him or not agree with him or disagree with him when you're in a room with that guy he is magnetic and he is charismatic and you cannot help but sort of be entranced by him so there's a sort of like indefinable character trait that certain people have and Khan clearly has it in spades where no matter what people are going to be drawn to him and listen to what he says and I I think that's a pretty interesting dynamic and Montalban plays it beautifully see I was going to say Tony Robbins but yeah sure Bill Clinton (laughs) oh man (laughs) does that mean that Khan is going to have his own uh, series of self-help books he certainly could I mean you know he's on an abandoned planet he's got to do something yeah. It's going to yeah. be like 100 years before they come back and check on him. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, you know, by the, by the time we get to the end of this, um, I, I keep feeling like uh, the whole, but then the Enterprise might explode as mm-hmm. a secondary plot device. I'm getting a little tired of that, hmm. you know? 
We're well, 22 episodes in, and we've already had it a few times. Well, settle in. I mean, what else do they have? Yeah. I mean, they've got their ship. You know, if he doesn't have somebody at the point of a phaser, or if being at the point of a phaser doesn't phase the person, pun, you know, accidental, but I'm not going to apologize for it. I mean, pretty <laughs> much the only thing you've got is, well, we're in space, and we're in a thing that's keeping us alive in space, so I guess I could threaten to get rid of the thing that's keeping us alive in space. I mean, you're right. If it was every week, it would be bad, but, you know, seriously, what else you got? Yeah. I'm going to no, flood we're, the whole we're place with radiation, and then we'll all be dead anyway. But the ship will still be here. Yeah, true. <laughs> with Kong comes an incredible future for Star Trek, but what lessons come with Space Seed? So one of the big specifics that we get here about Khan and about late 20th century Earth is the eugenics war and eugenics in general uh, being what created Khan. And I I thought it was interesting that, you know, we've dealt with the idea here of uh, selective breeding or at least selective humanity in in a few ways. Certainly, Mm -hmm. Dr. Corby. Love him. Our old favorite. Um, he was he was certainly on a on a tear about manipulating and perfecting humanity, and um, Doctor Tristan know, Adams. Oh, absolutely, Doctor Adams. Yeah. yeah, he was about that too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and here we we see that um, you know again we're driving this home like the the sort of um, uh, undeveloped and and cruel and short sighted humans of the 20th century are experimenting with eugenics, uh, like they hadn't learned the lesson from World War II and the early eugenics movement. They were still doing this, um, and hopefully in the 23rd century we have figured out that this is a bad thing. Um, yeah, you think so? Yeah. Well, I it it, <laughs> it, it, it seems like a given from. The conversation between Spock and Kirk, right? But but they keep running into me. You know, it, you know, we can't exactly blame Khan. Khan is a product of that, and he is a product of the 20th century. But they run into Doctor Adams, they run into Doctor Corby, and all these other examples where you still have people 300 years later, two to 300 years later, experimenting with the same thing. Well, and I mean, the thing is, I don't think any of them thought that that's what they were doing. I mean, well, except they were. Yeah. I, I don't know that they thought that's what they were doing, but they were. I mean, they were actually trying to accomplish – well, you can argue about whether or not Adams was. But uh, Corby was trying to accomplish something good, and it ends up going horribly wrong fairly quickly when he says we could just take this out or we could just take this out. Uh, the thing is I'm not 100 percent certain – I mean that we're not – well, I'm, I'm fairly certain that we are still doing it in a way. We're on a very, very, very slight grade that could get steeper – and could get slippery. I mean, what I found myself wondering was, when we talk about eugenics, I mean, is it the way that we practice it that makes it bad? Because things have happened in the past, you know, like forced sterilization was going on in parts of this country until as as recently as, as when Star Trek started. Yeah. Right? Okay. That's not good. No question. I, at least I hope there's no question about that. Good. Um, yeah. Worse things happen than forced sterilization. See also World War II. Mm-hmm. Now, it is interesting to me that the last world war, at least as far as the original series is concerned, 
because I think you can argue about whether or not what was going on in First Contact was actually a, a, a world war. But as far as the original series is concerned, the last world war involved eugenics, though how – I'm wondering if how plays a part in it. Kirk is wondering if Khan is the product of selective breeding. So I guess that's how this was done. Like the, you know, Mr. A and Mr. and Ms. Z got together and made Khan, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, it was decided who was going to get together with whom to produce this perfect specimen and, and, you know, the other perfect specimen just like him. We know that slaves were purchased with an eye towards producing a better stock of slaves in the 17 and 1800s. So selective breeding and forced sterilization, these are ways that we've seen eugenics practiced into the mid-1960s or up to the mid-1960s when the show was written. And they're all seen as bad. And I'm with that. Those are all bad. Okay, good. Good. We have since mapped the human genome. We are closer in more scientific, more granular, and and certainly less cruel ways to being able to breed or build the kind of people that we might find more desirable. And I think we're okay with that. And I'm wondering if we should be. I mean, it begs the question where the line is. Do we correct eyesight and overbites, but we don't try to, you know, improve on IQ? Do we eliminate lifelong ailments and conditions where possible, but, you know, not try to say strengthen the immune system or or is life prolongation, which has been the downfall of many a society in these first 22 episodes of Star Trek, <laughs> is life prolongation cool with us at this point? And then what about, you know, what happens to the people whose parents didn't have the money to make sure that their kids wouldn't have overbites or bad eyes, right? I mean, this, this we're, we're doing this now. We're not doing yeah. it in the same way and we're not trying to breed a race of supermen, we think. We're just trying to make everybody better. <laughs> right. Well, well that, that's, that, that's a mouthful. You know, I mean, that, that is such a huge, multifaceted topic to tackle here. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, you asked, well, what happened? And, and is it really important that we know what happened? Well, it may not be critical, but I, I think it is interesting to ponder. And, hey, that's our job here is to ponder that stuff. You know, I kind of get the impression that all these genetically altered supermen were either forced onto a ship, so all, all, all of us in the late 1990s who were not benefiting from genetic manipulation um, uh, overthrew them, I, it, it maybe is that possible, got them onto a ship and said, get out of here, or something went so wrong, so badly, that they voluntarily left. Um, but did they really think they'd be able to come back and, you know, lick that problem 200 years later? I, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's great room for speculation. And um, I know that there are a lot of Star Trek novels that deal with all of this in much more detail. But our job here is not the novels. It's what we're given in the shows. Um, Okay, you've sort of walked away, though, from, from the question that I asked about eugenics. I mean, first oh, of all— Oh, I, I did that specifically because it's so damn hard. Oh, okay. Excellent. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because um... there are things that we're doing right now, right, to improve life that we would say are not bad things. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, so maybe they're not eugenics. Maybe technically they're not eugenics. I'm just wondering, at, you know, at what point do we worry about well, yeah, that no, kind I mean, of thing? Uh, it's a good point. I, I, I mean, um, we vaccinate people now, and we have done for decades, as we should. To- no, no, centuries. I mean, one of the one of the big, oh sure, one of the box, tragedies yeah. of of Ben Franklin's life was the fact that he didn't have his uh, youngest child or oldest. Yeah. I can't remember which one of his children uh, vaccinated against. I believe it was smallpox. 
Yeah. And and that child died. And so he had his other child uh, vaccinated yeah. because he yeah. didn't want the same thing to happen again. So yeah. we've been doing that for quite a while. And that's the thing. I'm not saying we don't do preventative medicine. <laughs> right? right. I mean, you know, it's raining outside. Wear a hat. Wear a right. coat. It's cold outside. Bundle up. You know, I mean, right. but, but, but we, we do these things like, like vaccinations and and, you know, or, or genetic testing, which can be available to try to to try to determine future outcome. Right. You know, and, and it, it is like you said, it, it, it's so hard to call it a slippery slope. And I, I don't like that phrase too much. But like you said, it's this very, very minor grade. It's what that could potentially lead to a slippery slope. Yeah. Nah. All right. Yeah. Check, I, check back in 50 years if the War of the Supermen comes and goes. <laughs> you'll wish we had decided something here. <laughs> yeah, right. Because we got right. that kind of power. I, I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I, I, just personally, you know, just from my own point of view, I, I take the point of view that, that science is a neutral proposition. Um, that it is neither inherently good nor bad. Mm-hmm. It is only implementation of that which uh, which leads to a problem. And it's so interesting that, you know, before we've even really gotten good at working with genetics, there are countries that already have laws on the book saying what you can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't prevent another scientist in another country from coming up with something. And, well, you know, there's a, a whole other argument to be had there about well if one country is developing genetic supermen do we lose out because we're not also developing genetic supermen <laughs> you know you gotta figure too that what happened i mean whatever gave rise to Khan had to be happening in secret yes i don't think the un got together and said okay everybody eugenics <laughs> go see what yeah. you come up with <laughs> but, but this is such a tough call because you know if you knew that your child, say, you know, before it is born, is going to have some, you know, whether it's a predisposition for cancer, a cystic fibrosis, or something that could be treated genetically, I think there's not a parent in the world who would say no. Oh, I think there are some parents in the world who would say no. Really? But, well, yeah, but then it becomes a, uh, then it becomes a science versus um, a sort of God has a plan for everybody argument. And I yeah. and I really don't want to I don't want to go there because I honestly don't know if I were in that situation. Maybe you know one of the many reasons that I, I so far have not had children. I imagine I just you know that's it's that's it's an impossible thing to think about. It's a horrible it thing to think about. And uh, maybe you were right to avoid the topic. Yeah. So Ricardo Maltabon, huh? <laughs> right. Right. Well, okay. So Ricardo Maltabon, let's talk about Khan yeah. a little bit. Um, right. I, there's this really interesting dynamic here between MacGyver's and Khan. And oh. I, yeah, hello. Uh-huh. Um, hey, she's she's very attractive, and uh. Khan is immediately taken with her. Yeah. Um, but what's going on here in Starfleet? Every now and then, we're presented with somebody who can't do their job. You know, we we look at Styles in Balance of Terror, who has gone through all the training. He's done everything right. He's there on the bridge. Oh, but guess what? He's racist. Um, <laughs> here we have MacGyver's, who is uh, an accomplished officer, okay? Um, mm-hmm. But this is an indication here about how emotion can lead you into a very bad decision. She is so taken with Khan, and Kirk even calls her out on it. Um, and to me, it sort of puts Khan in this position as like a cult leader, Oh, I think it's worse than that. I think he's an abusive husband, except not even a husband. 
I would like to know. I would like to know about MacGyver's last boyfriend. Oh dear, do you? <laughs> I, well, and that may sound terrible, but I mean, oh, this is bad. Okay, we've talked about sexism in Star Trek in the past, yeah. and it feels like we have to again. Um, just briefly, yeah, yeah. just briefly. Everything that happens bad for the Enterprise and good for Khan centers around MacGyver's weakness and her proclivity for, or at the very least, tolerance of abuse in a relationship. Now, what's weird is they go from not knowing each other to in an abusive relationship in the course of, like, next to no time. Yeah. He flirts. She flirts. He then demands ultimate loyalty while causing her physical pain and threatening to cut her off entirely from him. And then even like at the very end of the episode, she stays with him. Now, in fairness, her options were go to this hostile planet with this guy who's really really been abusive to you, but you are attracted to him or face court martial. And so she goes ahead and goes. The thing is, nobody on the Enterprise has actually seen the abusive side of their relationship. It's only her and Khan that have seen that. But we as the audience have seen that. And the fact that we see that and it's not addressed – uh, kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, it, it, that scene is really difficult to watch where he's manipulating her. Now, it, it's played for dramatic effect, of course. You know, yeah. And, and, and we're, we're, we're heightening the stakes and we're heightening the drama each time here. And I would say that in some ways this is one of the more over-the-top episodes that we've seen uh, so far because of the, the bigger-than-life quality of Khan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that is a difficult scene to watch, and, and I, I agree with you fully that I, I think there is this element of, um, if not intentional, the, the sexism that comes through because she is the catalyst for so much of what happens. Yeah. But 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 I I will say that I'll say that that stands true. I'll also say that my idea here of the cult leader stands true because the relationship that people have with a cult is very often the same thing sure. that people have with an abusive relationship. Sure. And and I think you could even rewrite this and not have the character be MacGyver's, not have the character be female, and end up at least in the same place. You know? Uh, close to it. You would need a little bit more time, though. You would need... And that's that's part of the reason that it works. I mean, MacGyver's because of her fascination with history, because of her fascination with uh, strong men throughout history. Um, I mean, he he hits her sweet spot, you know, immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. For a for a male uh, heterosexual character to be as taken with Khan, you'd need a little more time. You would basically need to allow Khan to wander the ship for a while and talk, and sort of you know convert people. And so right. I think having it be uh, a woman uh, happens a bit more quickly. I was just sort of turned off by the, you know, by the uh, by the abusive side of it. Now, don't misunderstand me. Uh, there's something kind of hot about power play, right? Like when 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 she says, you know, I'll stay for a few minutes, and he's like, eh, you know, I'm bored with you. You have to ask to stay now. Okay, that's like that's like Fifty Shades of Grey kind of stuff, right? Which I haven't <laughs> which I haven't read, but I mean, right. you don't get the sense that that's gonna necessarily go violent. That's just you know. Oh, you like me? Well, I don't know if I like you anymore. Ask me to like you. Okay, that's, right. that's, that's, I mean, seriously, maybe I'm giving too much away about myself here. That's kind of hot. And then when she says, okay, can I please stay? And then he goes immediately to hurting her. That's when it crosses the line. And not yeah. in a Fifty Shades of Grey or the secretary kind of way, not with her consent does this happen, just with, you know, he starts crushing her hand. Yeah. <laughs> and, and by the way, 
I'm going to take over the Enterprise too. I mean, so <laughs> oh, love me, love my dastardly plan. I mean, yeah. there's, there's just, there, I mean, this is like, you know, I didn't want to rob the bank, but you know, he made me, and I love him. I mean, this, this is just, this just reeks of, of, of domestic <laughs> violence and, and abusive relationship. Well, but it, but it, it is, is con. <laughs> yeah, it, it is con, and it's all about power. I mean, yeah. what we're describing here is, you know, you have the interpersonal power and this glimpse at how how this individual gets people to follow him and do whatever he says. But then you also have power in this bigger sense, his bigger ambition. And the episode raises a couple of questions here. Spock says it, but I have to wonder, does the superior, and that's in scare quotes, uh, breeding lead to superior ambition? Are we just saying that ambition is another biological trait that can be controlled? Um, Hmm. You know, well, it, it's a question. Superior um, breeding may lead to superior ambition. I don't know that it necessarily leads to cruelty. I mean, that that feels mm-hmm. like a, that feels like a like a quick thing for Spock to say to sort of justify or explain a lot of what's going on. But yeah, uh, yeah. It, it seems to me that um, the the likening of superior ambition to seizing power uh, might be a little a little too cut and dry. It's it's a little bit of a stretch, yeah. uh, but but the the big thing here is this idea of Khan as a representation of power, and that's when I started thinking. Well, okay, he actually says to Kirk, you know, I gave them order, I offered them order, meaning what he offered to the world. Right. And there's this question here about the strength of order versus freedom versus individual freedom. So the the freedom of the masses be damned. What I'm offering to you is better because it is orderly and therefore we'll be better, well, and better is a relative term here, um, than what we have now. I, I have to tell you, I, I almost cried at the end of Rome. Did, did, you, did you see that HBO series, Rome? Yeah, it didn't happen at the end, but I know what you're talking about. Well, it happened at the end of, of season one. Season one, so yes. Season yes. one, you, you, you get to the end of it, and you have the assassination of Julius Caesar. But here's the thing. He was built up as this character, this extraordinary human being with this extraordinary life who had a dream about making the Roman Empire into something new. And... Again, the the needs of the individuals and needs of the of the the masses be damned. His vision was going to be better, you know. Um, so it was an, a huge egregious abuse of power, no question about it. Um, but to me, there was something really fascinating here about the idea of the bad guy who, in his twisted way, in his twisted logic, thinks that he is doing good. Um, Mussolini was a bad guy, but hey, he made the trains run on time. <laughs> That's what you always hear. And and I love this idea. I don't know who you are. <laughs> but I love this idea of Khan is a strong, uh, you know, representational character of power, but power gone amok, power gone awry and abused. And it does raise this question, do we need, what do we need in a leader to unify and inspire to make the whole better than the sum of its parts um, without going down this path of being dictatorial and cruel. Oof. 
Yeah, answer that <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think it has to do with the leader. I think it has to do with the, uh, I mean, completely to do with the leader. I think it could have to do with the situation. I've always been a big fan of The Watchmen, not the movie, but the comic mm-hmm. book. We had an alien enemy from outside. Mm-hmm. And that's what united humanity in theory. You know, I mean, you're, what you're asking is, do we need a dictator? No, I hope not. I, ugh. I mean, that's just a terrible idea. I mean, maybe what's the vision and whose vision is it? I mean, you're sort of assuming that order is better for everybody, but really all we knew was that Khan wanted power. He says he offered order, but I mean, we don't hear why that matters to him. We don't hear that he actually thinks that's going to be beneficial for everybody. What we really only hear is that Khan wants to rule. Yeah, but he he wanted to rule at a time when there was suppose in Star Trek's version of history war and and uh, well, caused, chaos. Well, caused by him. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, caused by the rise of these supermen who wanted power. I mean, they say that you know there were there was infighting, there was battle between all of these super people, and Khan says, but eventually somebody would have won. So you say that he would bring order, but he also brought chaos. I mean, that was him. That was him and his people that were like him who did that. And eventually he would have brought order. All he had to do was wage war across the planet first to basically return us to a state of not having war raged across the planet. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let, let's go ahead and say no dictator either. How's that? We'll say, we'll say no forced sterilization and, uh, and, 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 and no dictator. And no dictator. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but again, but I think there's a fine line here between dictator and strong leader. Strong leaders are important. Strong leaders can get things done. Right. And, you know, you can draw the parallel between, okay, Khan and uh, Hitler, you know, whatever. Sure. Uh, you know, pick a bad guy out of history. But, but like I said, I wanted to bring up the thing about um, Caesar. Now, Caesar in the, you know, 2,000 years since has become this romanticized, poetic figure. Um, but... I point that out because, again, we, we are able to humanize Caesar because of that in a way that we don't to other strong leaders slash dictators. So I, I, I'm kind of drawn to this idea of Khan, um, not not in the way that MacGyver is drawn to Khan. Right. But, uh, but, but, I, but I think it's a fascinating uh, thing to look at him as a um, having strong leadership qualities, clearly abusing them. Um, but what exactly was his? What exactly was his uh, his uh, uh, his vision? Um, Please direct your mail for this week's episode to John. <laughs> I look hey, forward. Just, I look forward to hearing about the email that you get. By the way, hey, I'm I'm posing questions. I'm posing <laughs> All questions. right, man. Yeah. All right. I'm not saying I want to live in Khan's world. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. But let's but let's talk about the world that uh, that Khan is interested in creating. Let's talk about Milton. Okay. John Milton, it's the phrase that pays. Um, he would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. So uh, John Milton, he was uh, the great 17th century English author. He was a staunch defender of individual rights and freedom of speech. Um, and we all know him from his epic poem, Paradise Lost, so the, the dramatic retelling of the Christian story of the fall of man story from the Bible. Um, but it was written alongside the political turmoil of the English Civil War. 
So John Milton was a supporter of the Republic and overturning the monarchy. Um, so I kind of found that interesting because all of this, the idea of rule by people, is very not a con idea. Right. <laughs> um, but in Paradise Lost, he is grasping with the idea of authoritative rule, this time by the hand of God. Hmm. You know, so, so he, he, even though he's saying, okay, freedom for people, but God is still the ultimate authority. So he's still kind of handing that off and, and saying there, there is this outside force that gets to rule and determine who we are and what we do in our lives. That's, so, Milton, that's Milton, but that's not Kahn's reference. No, that, yeah, exactly. That, that right. is Milton. I thought it was interesting to have a little background on Milton and what else he wrote, um, because it doesn't always line up with Kahn. I think Kahn shows a, a very good selective quotation to, uh, uh, to justify his exile. Well, <laughs> and, and it was also an awesome Star Trek quotation to me. Um, mm-hmm. Like, from Pike, you know, Choosing to live the life that he at the beginning of the episode in the cage was, you know, wondering whether or not he wanted to keep doing that. He was thinking he just wanted to go home, settle down, raise a family. But then when he's given the option of that illusion, you know, he chooses real life over Vina and the wonders of the mind on Talos for um, killing Landru and the return of the Archons for denying people their creativity and freedom. That's, I mean, it's sort of the same kind of thing. Would you rather, you know, rule in hell or live in heaven? Um, Spock yelling in, uh, not Spock, Kirk yelling in Star Trek V, I need my pain, mm-hmm. right? The struggle and the free will are almost always preferable in the Star Trek universe to a life that's free of care, which, which I mean, which is sort of, I mean, this, which goes straight to that, that Milton quote. I'd rather, you know, yeah, I'd rather yeah. rule in hell than serve in heaven. Yeah, we've seen it a few times, the, the strong streak of individualism. I, I thought it was interesting you mentioned Talos IV because then when the circumstance changes, then Pike changes his mind. Yeah. Well, you know? what do you mean? But he kind of has to. <laughs> you know? What, you mean later in the menagerie? Yeah. Oh, well, that's different, isn't it? It is. It they, is. They, so the the, the you, circumstance kind of dictates what You happens. know what they did? They retconned. Oh, nice use of the word retcon. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I don't know if you can actually say that about the, uh, you know, the people who actually wrote the show, but I would say that they, they retcon. Yeah. Hey, can we really quickly discuss uh, one of the potentially dark sides of the Federation? Yeah, let's do it. What are reorientation centers? Oh, I was afraid you'd ask that. Kirk says to send Khan and crew to a reorientation center would be a waste. Now, I mean, it almost reminds me, again, not to keep bringing him up, but... Uh, it reminds me of the of uh, Dagger of the Mind. The impression that I get is whatever goes into a reorientation center is not what comes out of a reorientation center. Um, I, I, I agree. I, I think Khan is he is uh, one session with Doctor Adams away from being a contributing member of society. <laughs> and and the other question: What's going on outside the Federation that they have reorientation centers? Right. I mean, you know what it sounds like: work camp. I mean, it sounds yeah, like right. it sounds like a lot of bad stuff. And you know, maybe it was just a quick way to write it. Like, you know, well, how is Kirk just going to drop him off there? Shouldn't he go to prison? Well, he wouldn't go to a real prison though, because it would take him about ten minutes to lead a prison revolt. So yeah. let's say that he's not going to take him to, I don't know, what do you want to call? It? Let's call it a reorientation center. But the problem is when everybody, I mean, we, you know, fifty years later, we're still watching Star Trek. So we then take these parts and go, what's a reorientation center? 
That yeah. that sounds is that like drug induced? Is that is it a lobotomy? What is it? Yeah, there's another part of the dark underbelly of yeah. uh, of the future. Potentially dark. Yeah, pay I no know. attention to the big machine behind the curtain. Right. Hey, um, I, I want to get your impression really quickly here on um, Kirk's decision at the end. He, he shows compassion for Khan eh. um, by saying, OK, we're not going to send you to a rehabilitation center. We're not going to jail. you. We're going to dump you on this planet. Right. I, I almost see that as a show of compassion. And I have to wonder, is it out of respect for Khan's power? Is this to show that he is better than punishing Khan and somebody who's better than than just sort of the the obvious um, uh, punishment that would come, or or does he do this out of fear? <laughs> you know, what it, it, any any thoughts on that? Well, your trivia, dude. Do we like were they actually planning? Was this was it always planned that something else would happen with Khan? No, really, no. That's fascinating. Never planned. Yeah. That is absolutely fascinating because that's the only reason I can see doing that. I mean, especially yeah. leaving the end of the episode going, oh, it'd be interesting to come back. Of course, they did say in 100 years. But um, there's no justification for Spock to, I mean, for Kirk doing this as far as I can tell. Yeah. I mean, there's really, there's none. I, I assumed actually that they were planning on going back and doing something else with Khan later on because. There's just, I mean, there's no way not turning him over to the authorities is a good idea. <laughs> unless, I mean, unless he is afraid that somehow Khan will end up taking over the Federation. But that seems like a stretch. I mean, we just talked about the, you know, the dark underbelly of, uh, uh, potentially dark underbelly of Starfleet and the Federation with the reorientation centers and what have you. I don't know. I don't know. I di- it didn't quite ring true to me, but of course, I mean, I'm so glad it happened because, boy, if we don't have that, we don't have. I don't know if I've said it on this episode or not, but Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan is my Christmas movie. I watch it every Christmas Eve. We don't get Star Trek II, then we don't get Star Trek Three, and then we don't get Star Trek Four because that was like a three, you know, three yeah. picture arc or arch or continuing story <laughs> or, you know, whatever a trilogy, the proper way even. to say that. Well, yeah. Not quite a trilogy, but kind of, you yeah. know? So should they have done that? Probably not in terms of the story, but boy, oh boy, am I glad they did. Eugenics, domestic abuse, leadership versus tyranny, this episode has everything, but does it warrant viewing today? Spoiler alert. Yes. Sadly, people and other people, the plane to ferry you back to the mainland is coming to this little fantasy island of an episode. It's time for us to to ask the big questions, the questions about the messages, morals, and meanings, and whether or not they stand the test of time. Uh, the first question we generally speaking start with is, does this episode hold up? Ken, how dare you? How dare you ask that I question? I have to ask the question. You know that. <laughs> it's my job. Yes. Yes. Um, here's the thing. Uh, the, the, the joy of doing Mission Log is getting to re-watch the episodes and, and forcing myself to pay attention to all the things that I didn't notice or, or didn't care as much about previously mm-hmm. and 
the things that I got out of it this time around, I, I've always loved Khan. I've always loved the story that he became. Um, there's so much about it that I dig. But this time around, I, I was so taken in by the chilling psychological play, particularly between Khan and MacGyver's. And, mm-hmm. and that's why I'm glad we had that discussion about the cult leader aspect, the the sexual abuse aspect of it. To me, that, that really was... Um, the, the critical moment here for me in watching it. It is a great episode, and I hope that if there are people in our audience who are introducing Star Trek to people, this is a great way to do it, to watch this episode and then watch Star Trek too. We don't like to get out of the timeline on our show, but in this case, they so beautifully work together yeah. uh, that it, you kind of have to. Yeah, I agree. What about I agree. I mean, for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, because it has to hold up because that's what gets us to Star Trek too. Um, mm-hmm. But additionally, um, Khan. Yeah. Ricardo Maltavon. Now, something that we didn't hit, um, there are a couple of discrepancies. When you go from Star Trek, uh, when you go from Space Seed to Star Trek II, um, So they, uh, we'll do a little bit about Star Trek too, right? Uh, Chekhov and his current captain beam down to what they think is SETI Alpha 6. It turns out it's SETI Alpha 5. Right. They come across a ship, the Botany Bay. Then Khan comes in and says, I don't know you, to the captain. <clears throat> and he turns to Chekhov and says, but you, I never forget the face. Yeah, guess yeah. who wasn't on this episode? <laughs> right, right. And, and not only was Chekhov yeah. not on this episode, not only do we not see Khan... Uh, come across Chekhov. We can assume, I guess, maybe that he was somewhere else on the Enterprise. We just didn't see their meeting. Okay. He he was in the galley making turkey meatloaf. He, he, may, he may well uh-huh. have been. Um, the problem is Khan also uh, just tossed the Botany Bay out into space once he took over the Enterprise. So mm. when they drop <laughs> when they drop him off, I guess the assumption that we're supposed to have when Star Trek Two begins is that the Enterprise went back and picked up the spaceship so that they could strand Khan on a planet with a spaceship. <laughs> okay, so so leave those off. I mean, of course it still holds up. And it holds up mostly, I think, because of, and not only because it has to, because of the timeline, but because of Ricardo Maltaban. The way he, the, 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 his character, I mean, his, the, the joy he takes in almost being bested by Kirk a few times and the way he delivers his lines. I yeah. mean, you could say that he's not a good actor. I don't know whether he's a good actor or not, to be honest with you. But, I mean, there's just a delivery. And maybe it's, maybe it's because I have been watching Star Trek II since it came out in 1982. Maybe it is because it is one of my favorite movies, period. Not one of my favorite Star Trek movies. One of my favorite movies, period. Mm-hmm. I mean, just hearing him do it again, just seeing him do that again, revisiting you know, him in this role, because I haven't watched this nearly as much as I've watched Star Trek II. Um, yeah, it just works and works and works. It's a great character. When, <clears throat> when you say that characters are bigger than life, this, you look that up in the dictionary, bigger than life character, and there, there's Khan. I mean, yes. It really is. There's yes. so much meat there to chew on. It's not Mr. Rourke, even though they do kind of look alike. Right. <laughs> so uh, is there a message to the show, do you think? I, you know, there's not a strong message here. No, um, I, I don't think so. I think there are great ideas. Um, mm-hmm. I think this is a rich show for ideas. I loved looking at the, the concept of power, and you, you thought that I was um, – uh, celebrating the great dictators of history. No, well, no o- such only thing. Only <laughs> because you were. 
<laughs> no, no. All right. How, how dare you? Um, no, I, I think this is a great uh, uh, exploration of, of what power is, what power means, and what power does, um, and, and how to hopefully um, not allow ourselves to fall into the traps of, well, what dictators would set uh, in order to control. Um, so I think there's great, great ideas there. Um, I... I'm having trouble finding a single solid message. This is not a Hey Temmy episode. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Although, I mean, there are things that I would like to see done differently. I mean, the questions about eugenics are kind of interesting, certainly. They they leave us a lot of room to examine, I think. Yeah. Um, I do wish – I wish things between uh, Khan and MacGyver's had been a bit different because watching it today – yeah. Uh, the abusive aspect of their relationship does not does not feel as good. You actually said sexual abuse earlier. It's not that. It's 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 abuse. It's I mean, this is between two adults. This is not you know sort of like when you say sexual abuse, I think people think Sandusky or something along those lines. Oh no 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 no. I, 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 they have a a psychosexual relationship. They they have a complex relationship. All of the aspects of that relationship are abusive. Yeah, and <laughs> that know? and that part's yeah. that part's a drag. And so, I mean, if if there's anything to fault the episode for, well, I mean, and then you know, casting a guy who's not Indian as a guy who's supposed to be from <laughs> India. <laughs> right, but right. I mean, if there's anything you know substantive to can uh, to 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 fault the episode for, it is the, uh, the the how okay we are with the abusive relationship between Kirk and uh, MacGyver's, not Kirk. I'm sorry, between Khan and MacGyver's. Um, that said, though, it's still just a, it's still just a great show and it does give you, does give people a lot to think about, even though there is no, you know, one save the whales or, you know, anything like that message. There's a little message there. I think about, you know, uh, MacGyver's like we've seen a few times before she, she lets herself lose her professional cool. You know, um, we've seen that a couple of times in Star Trek and uh, the results are, are never good. Um, and I do think that we see a bit of compassion um, from Kirk. He is the better leader because of it. Um, again, it's not a message, but it's an important distinction about the future that we're representing in Star Trek versus the bad guy. Well, I know I jokingly said, please direct all of your uh, mail to John, but if you want to get in touch with either of us about anything that you've heard on this episode or any other episode of Mission Log, or maybe an upcoming episode of Star Trek that you would like to mention, there are so many ways to get in touch with us. On Facebook, Skype, Twitter, our handle there, all of those places, Mission Log Pod, or you can call us, 323-522-5641, 323-522-5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com, that's missionlog at roddenberry.com. And don't forget to check out our uh, super cool, kind of swanky website, missionlogpodcast.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Hey, guys. It's Matt from San Francisco. Just finished listening to your podcast on the menagerie. And uh, I wanted to say I think there's ways in which in the larger context of the Star Trek universe, we see uh, Spacey is the precursor that leads into the, the development of this, that same story in Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. I think there's ways in which we have things in the menagerie that set up, if not the direct story, certainly some of the relational dynamics from Star Trek III. 
where we see uh, Spock now, rather than Pike, is the one who is incapacitated and needs his friend's help. And to do that, they need to put their lives and their careers on the line and go to the planet that is forbidden, absolutely forbidden by Starfleet. And for Spock, uh, there was obviously absolute loyalty to Pike that he, he did that. And having seen that and experienced, experienced that in the past, I think in... Uh, Star Trek Three, Kirk and McCoy have that as sort of their model for now their friend Spock is in that same place and they can say and know with absolute certainty that were the roles reversed, Spock would do the same for them. And they know because he did it for Pike. And I think that adds to the certainty, absolute certainty they have that this is what they have to do. Not just because Spock just saved their lives at the end of Star Trek Two and gave himself up. That's part of it. But there's also this knowledge of the intensity of loyalty that Spock has that draws them into this sort of uh, way of understanding their relationship with him. If the roles were reversed, Spock would do it for them. And that gives them the courage and the certainty they need to be able to go and do that same thing for Spock. Thanks a lot, guys. Love the podcast. Next week, if you don't want to make a whole meal out of it, we'll just offer you up a little taste of Armageddon. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I'm going online now to find old episodes of Fantasy Island, and Planet of the Apes movies, and commercials featuring fine Corinthian leather. and transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com